The Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk. I'm joined to review the news this morning by Larry Donnelly, who is law lecturer at the University of Galway, by Gabia Gadavisketia, who is a political reporter with the Irish Independent, and Gavin Duffy, businessman and former presidential candidate, of course. And this, there's only really one place that we can start because it is splashed across the front pages of all of the papers. Business Post, golden handshakes, media ministers threaten to cap RTE exit payments. Thank you very much, Larry. You're a gentleman. I'm, I'm flinging papers around here and Larry is neatening things up. Um, the Irish Mail on Sunday, Coveney got paid 200k to exit RTE. The Sunday Times, DG approved 200k deal for Coveney. And Sunday Indo, Taoiseach on attack as RTE admits new golden handshake. Could be for people unfamiliar who haven't had a chance to get up to speed on what was revealed late afternoon yesterday. I think RTE put out its statement around 4.30 yesterday. What do we now know? Yes, so it's been another miserable week, I think, for RTE yet again. Um, And I just want to give very quick context of where we've actually come from in the past couple of months. So since June, since it was revealed that Ryan Tuberty, top presenter, of course, now gone to London, was paid those 345,000 of so-called hidden payments. We've gone from the saga surrounding that and how all that worked out. We've gone to the Toy Show musical, which was a 2.23 million flop. Uh, that RT put in place. And now we're actually on to these exit payments that really are quite unbelievable revelations this week. The rumour, I think, around the former Chief Financial Officer, Brito O'Keefe, was that she was paid around 400000 to leave RT. Um, Kevin Backhurst revealed that it was actually 450000 um, and so questions remained for the other executives who left RTE, um, especially in, in the springtime since the Ryan Tuberty, those hidden payments scandal broke. Um, Kevin Backer's putting out a statement uh, yesterday afternoon, as you say, trying to clarify and clean up a few things. One of the biggest revelations from it, without a doubt, is that Rory Coveney, who was the former director of strategy, uh, Minister for Enterprise, Simon Coveney's brother, he got 200,000 deal. Um, and just to give a bit of context around this, you know, it's of he resigned. So why is he getting the money paid? Well, Kevin Backer said sometimes there are things such as agreed resignations. Um, so, you know, maybe you might sit around and say, look, maybe it's best for the organisation that you leave. We're going to give you some money to help you along. Um, and and this is, seems to be what happened here. Um, if you look at the papers, you know, the Taoiseach um, and, and really all the heads of government expressing their disbelief at the amounts of figures that are involved. And of course, this is taxpayers' money. Um, Ortiz, you know, semi-state. So, uh, you know, half of it is taxpayers' money and half of it isn't. Um, but, you know, in Catherine Martin in the Business Post, she's threatening to put a cap on those exit payments. Um, even though Kevin Backer has insisted this week that the Bridge O'Keefe payment is correct in the Sunday Independent. It's reported that she's in favour of the state's auditor, uh, the Comptroller and Auditor General, taking RTE under its wing. Of course, that will require legislative change. What's to come yet? It's not over yet for RTE. Just to clarify, that could be currently RTE is not answerable to um, the Comptroller and Auditor General. Is that the right? Whereas other public service bodies, it is is audited by it like it would be a big four. Yes. So every single year we'd have the state's auditor, which which would step in and look through RTE's accounts and forensically and it wouldn't be Deloitte or whoever else it would be the state's auditor that carries out that analysis so obviously the the hope there by ministers is that it would be you know a bit of a double lock 
a, a, a bit of a boot down and, you know, keep a closer eye on RTE, given everything that's gone on. Um, speaking privately to staffers, like I know it's in the papers as well, but morale is extremely low. They're looking at what Kevin Backhurst is saying and they believe him and they hope that it's it's going to transpire to be the case. But it just keeps getting worse and it's going to keep getting worse because we're waiting for those two independent reports that the government commissioned. They're coming at the end of the month and the government's going to make their recommendations around reform of RT and reform of the television licence. We know Cabinet is split on that. So unfortunately, RT's in the headlines and that's where it's set to be. Tech saying, how can Rory Coveney get an exit payment? He resigned and left. In any company, if you resign and leave, you get nothing. Now, this is the, where the slight confusion becomes because the Rory Coveney, when he departed, he um, gave a statement. And what his statement was, was, I've tendered my resignation to give him, and the him is Kevin Backhurst. I've tendered my resignation immediately to give him the space to do that, that being reorganised the management team. Having worked with Kevin before, I've absolute faith in him. He's the right person to rebuild the national broadcaster and I wish him the very best. Now, Gavin Duffy, the Mail is quoting unnamed sources from within RT saying the reaction to that was that people thought, decent guy, fallen on his sword. Now we discover that his sword came with €200,000. Yeah, and there's no justification for exit payments in these circumstances. And so I would uh, say RTE is in such a bad place now. It does not reflect very well on Kevin Backhurst. We all had initial confidence in his uh, role as DG, as somebody who could turn things around. Uh, It doesn't reflect well on Shuni Rahali, the chair, um, because... She signed off on 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 this. Um, hopefully, she won't get sick now, and we won't be able to hear any more about it uh, uh, because it's very important uh, that people are brought to account. But if we go back to the initial uh, misreporting of Ryan Tuberty's uh, payments, I think this is a much uh, more serious development uh, in RTE that. Um, Public money, uh, money contributed to RT by people in the way of a licence fee, uh, was being uh, paid off to people um, who, you know, were leaving anyway or should have been leaving uh, anyway and were not being asked uh, to make reparations for the damage they'd done or the losses uh, that were associated. Uh, and can you see any logic for why this payment would have been made? Yeah, look, it's it's uh, it, it happens very much in the corporate world, but like you're dealing with private money, right? And you know you want to do a clean sweep. You're the new you're the new boss, and you you, you, you know, and look, an extra year of salary or half a year of salary to somebody get them out the door, and you get them out the door with a bit of cooperation rather than a fallout. But I would have thought a person who's a former head of news who knows the news cycles, who has created news cycles, would know. This is going to come back and eat us. And uh, when Gabia, uh, what a, an excellent overview of uh, the events in RT, Gabby. And that's not just paying you a compliment. It's such a large story, isn't it, that you had to uh, tell us uh, all of the various elements to remind us of um, how many horrors are in this horror shop at the moment. Uh, but yeah, it, 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 it doesn't augur well for RTE putting an end to this. Again, more questions are being asked. It has implications, Larry Donnelly, for the perception, at least, if not the performance of Kevin Backhurst, because there was a clear line in the sand. Kevin Backhurst was ready there. He was in to put out all of the fires. 
this fire is one of his own making because it is he who signed off on the pavement on the payment to Rory Cove. Yeah, I, I think so. For, before I say anything, I should say my wife works for AT, so do, do disclosure as... as you, Is she you, considering resignation? You, I believe it's probably... You know, <laughs> you'd hear about it in your text if I didn't say it. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, Kevin Backhurst, the idea here was, it was he's going to clean house. He's going to change everything. Uh, this certainly casts some doubt uh, on that. I think, you know, for all the reasons that, that Gavin has outlined, I think uh, it's a big issue. Um, but I mean, pulling back a little bit, there's a bigger issue here. I mean, the reality is RT, just like every mainstream media outlet, uh, is facing into an existential crisis. The reality is, uh, at least the young people I know, uh, don't watch RT. They don't, pay, they don't pay any attention to it. So you have all of these issues. And the, the big picture here, I suppose, is uh, the license fee and uh, widespread not refusal to pay the license fee. And every day we have a drip feed of negative revelations. There are more and more people saying, I am not given that shower uh, one red cent. Uh, and that's a huge, huge problem for uh, RTE. And I think for all of us who care deeply uh, about public service broadcasting, who recognize the need for it, but uh, the next generation, at least the signs are, they're not as committed, and this negativity we see on a daily basis uh, doesn't help that. Uh, and I think ultimately this drip feed is going to continue on and on and on until we hear from D Forbes. Although the juxtaposition of those two things could be that the, if you take the amounts that have been given and the license fee pairs, if you're cleaning hotel rooms for a living, you'll do it for, what, 12, 15 years before you get Brito O'Keefe money. If, if you're a guard, you're five years signed up as a new guard on the force before you would get the money that Rory Coveney got. That has to make people say, why am I reaching in my pocket to pay licence fees? Well, sorry, like the vast majority of people are never going to see that amount of money in their lives. I mean, to be get this as an exit payment is a lump sum. And a really good way of visualising it is something that my colleague Senna Maloney uh, wrote about a couple of months ago. Imagine the little river of 160 euros, because that's what, it, that's what the money is. It's Joe and Josephine Soap, Joe and Joe Public paying their TV licence every single year, periodically going to the post office. And it's that little river of 160 euros that keeps funding exit payments, um, you know, these hidden, hidden, this hit so-called hidden money that Ryan Torberty got, the toy show that made no money and was a flop and cost the organisation. Like, like, that's where it comes down to. And of course, the public is now saying, well, where is that money going to? It's going to these executives I think Neve Smith, who's the chair of the media committee, you know, she was she made the point um, during the week that, you know, there's some people that are getting massive amounts of money and they should have perhaps have been getting sacked. I mean, they shouldn't have been getting that money at all. They shouldn't have been getting any payments. They shouldn't have been shown, shown the door. Um, and I'm not naming anybody. And I'm just referencing the point that she's made. Um, but at the committee. So like that's where it hurts most for people is that they're paying their TV licence diligently. We're seeing a drop off in those figures. I think the government knows that. And this is why this is such a sticky political issue to do it so close to election time, reforming the TV licence. And even if you scrap it, which is perhaps the popular view within government now at the moment, you still have to find that money every single time there is a budget, every single year. You still have to say we're going to give RT 200 million or 250 or 220 and um, go to the state coffers. And it will be competing with housing, with health, with all those other issues that we're hearing about. Um, and it still is taxpayers' money, even if people aren't shelling out for it every single year. Well, when you talk about the, the political appetite or lack thereof to uh, directly fund RTE, which is what it looks like we're going to end up with. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, Gavin, the sort of the, the drip feed of this and how long it's going on. There is a, an element of it that I, I'd like your view of in relation to uh, Kevin Backer's statements because he talked about Rory Coveney and the deal that was done with him. So he said, 
uh, that he can talk about the executives who have departed since he started as Director General. Two of them left and received no payment, Paula Maluli and Geraldine O'Leary. He says, in respect of Rory Coveney, he and I agreed that it was best that he stand down from his role and uh, as Director of Strategy. An exit payment was offered by RT and re- accepted by Rory with no backfill being made. RT will recoup this payment by July of this year. Following independent mediation, Richard Collins, RT's former Chief Financial Officer, departed RT by mutual agreement with a binding confidentiality clause that was agreed to by both sides and in the interests of fairness and respect cannot be breached. So I assume now what we see is weeks of the Public Accounts Committee and the Media Committee seeking to find out the numbers on Richard Collins. It's uh, a present to uh, a Public Accounts Committee or the Media Committee and uh, they will get um, great mileage out of it uh, over the next while. Um, Look, just a counterpoint some of the discussion so far and just uh, to forewarn your listeners if you are looking at papers today you cannot avoid the RTE story so I'm just saying that Anton because you know conscious I'm, you know we're on news talk I'm an independent contributor here this is a very big story and it's about something that is so key and central to our the arts culture uh, aspect of, of of our lives our national public service broadcaster um, I'm not as critical of Toy Show the Musical as anything else in in a media world where you're trying to find alternative streams uh, of, of, of income uh, and you had a big brand like that um, I would as a business person say look you, you, you made a cock up I, the, what I'd learn is that why didn't we pull it earlier uh, you know what, what, what's the trigger on, on ticket sales points particularly when the then chair was somebody who knew uh, theatre operations so well, Moya Doherty, because of her involvement uh, with Riverdance and so on. Well, so while you're it, counterpointing, let me counterpoint you. Yeah, please do, Anton. Some, <laughs> some of the criticisms in respect of Toy Show the Musical wasn't that, sure, it was, we gave it the old college try and it didn't work. When you break it down, the decision to run it in the convention centre, the biggest and most expensive venue that you can find mm. in the country, the decision to base it on the assumption of what, 85% plus ticket sales for a brand new show that has never run before, the decision to run a musical where all of your stars are children and therefore you have all of the challenges that go with that, with in their own annual report, the simple things of respiratory illnesses getting half the cast taken out. Those were interesting decisions, yeah, but, Gavin. But yes, but the counter the counterpoint to you, uh, and, 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 <laughs> Anton, <laughs> Anton uh, is that RTE needs to find other forms of funding, and we should like my fear is now RTE will never do anything outside the box ever again, and uh, uh, you, you know there has been like. Look how much was made from Riverdance over the years and RTE said, oh, well, we can't be involved and it was spun off. And if you look at the BBC, most of their earnings are coming from their commercial side of the house. So, you know, Rory Coveney, in as a strategist uh, during uh, the previous director general's time, you know, contributed a lot, etc. But look, this was... Uh, something that he was associated with, there should not have been uh, a payoff. As regards the licence fee, just to say that it is an anachronism. It, like, 
um, asking people to pay for a license fee. Uh, now, you know, the, the world of TV and streaming has gone subscription. But, like, I think that can be quickly and, and will be resolved at some point in the future. I don't think it should be a payment from the, the exchequer. I think it's possibly um, a license or a stamp duty on all of our mobile phones where, you know, every time, uh, you know, you pay a tenner a year for the use of a single mobile phone, that creates enough money. But Even that is politically difficult. Even yeah, yeah. that hard to go to the doorsteps telling people, look, you're going to, your mobile phone bill has gone up by 160 quid a year. I put a value, you see, to go back to Larry's very good point about the youngsters in his house not watching RT. And Larry, I, I would say they watch sport in RT because I don't know how you could live in Ireland and uh, have an interest in the GA and not watch RT. But I, I hear all these people, oh, I never watch RT. Uh, and that people watch RT in very large numbers and uh, the, the ratings, despite all of this, are still good. So, you know, this is not uh, a terminal uh, decline of RTE uh, uh, unless it's managed properly from here on in. But a screen fee, a phone screen fee uh, that would come in and would be distributed amongst uh, all of the arts, culture, broadcast uh, and maybe even some of uh, uh, the newspaper organisations because... The one thing technology is doing is it's homogenizing the world and th- that's good in, in, in some ways, but uh, the unique parts and elements of our culture need to be protected. We are a very special uh, race of people inviting in uh, new people into our wonderful melting pot and we should have a way to fund text, the way we communicate with l- ourselves. A lot of text response. Um, a message reorty sackings, as they are described in this text. Let us acknowledge that sacking in today's Ireland is statutorily impossible without compensation, which goes, Gavin, to your point of, of a way to get people out easily. Um, another, um, my 13 month, 13 euro a month for RT license is probably the best payment I make. I get live rugby, soccer, GAA, Euros, Olympics, Fair City, news three times a day, documentaries, investigations, love, hate, etc. I pay my license fee monthly by direct debit. I also buy a TV license stamp from time to time. The stamps are five euro each in the hope that some September I will have €160 Euro built up in stamps so I can then cancel the direct debit. I feel annoyed with Orti in the way they pay themselves the money that I struggle to gather. Um, why doesn't Orti, Why doesn't the government cast Orti adrift to fend for itself and give the funding for public service broadcasting to Virgin Media and stations like News Talk? Um, and sick to death of hearing about RT, when is all this going to be resolved? I suspect that's the question that's being asked around Montrose, around cabinet circles. Well, this is the thing, you know, you, that person's sentiment you just read out, you know, is one thing, but you said you're getting bombed with text. People are interested uh, in this, and it's the story that keeps going. Uh, I'm glad to hear from, from Gavin that he, at least, I, I'm sorry to put words in your mouth, but conceptually anyway, I didn't think the toy show, the musical, was a bad idea at a conceptual level. Uh, the toy show is an institution in Irish life. Uh, I would, would have thought uh, a musical might do some business, but uh, the reality is the, the controls and costing around it were a disaster. If anybody wants a really good read uh, in The Independent this week, Lisa Tani Keogh, who was one of the uh, people brought in to draft the script for it uh, and subsequently was axed, uh, she has a, a, an extraordinary read about how she knew uh, this was going to be a disaster and she knew it was going to uh, go down the road that it, it did. It's worth reading. Um, but look, you know, it, you know, every single day this drip feed, drip feed, drip feed uh, of more and more bad news uh, for RTE. And it's just it's going to feed a public sentiment that's out there. And of course, 
this is a gift to the politicians. The politicians can play this uh, for all it's worth, and they can play it uh, at the expense of other issues, which they arguably should be uh, more focused in on. Anton, just a, a quick point on on this. You know, whilst I would say, and, and Larry uh, 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 of the same view, you know, the concept of Toy Show, the musical, was important. But the real thing that I look at RT and I say it's not operating properly is um, why does it have the worst player uh, on these mm-hmm. islands My, by a country mile, right? And uh, so um, this is where I get value from RTE. Uh, myself and Orla have just watched all five episodes of uh, Yellowstone, uh, you know, on the RT player. But the sufferance of having to watch it on the RTI. Okay. Oh, well, I, I'm sure oh, having heard it, they will add it to their oh, list of priorities, Gavin, but it's probably uh, down the track at this point. And um, by the way, I should say, of course, that we have been uh, asking now for several months for um, Kevin Backers to join us and repeated that offer yesterday and today, but he uh, is unavailable. I'm joined by Larry Donneler, Donneler, Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at the University of Galway, Gabija. Gadvaskecha, who is political reporter with the Irish Independent, and Gavin Duffy, businessman, former presidential candidate. And where we are moving is to the news that despite all of the efforts that are apparently being made in terms of increasing houses, housing supply, the cost of houses, particularly for first-time buyers, are still prohibitively expensive and on the up. I'm joined by Pat David, who's CEO of the Institute of Professional Auctioneers, and valuers. No sign of the price drop that we are told is necessary, Pat. Hello, Pat. No sign yet of the price increases or the price decreases we've been talking or we've been hearing about. And it doesn't it doesn't look to us that there is uh, going to be price decreases if the property market continues on the strategy it's on at the moment. That's that's what it looks like from people who are in the marketplace looking at what's happening. And what are you seeing regionally? Is it particularly focused on urban Ireland? Is it a Dublin problem? Is it the same across the board? I think at the moment, Anton, it's it's more than likely a regional problem. Like the whole, we look at the property market and people talk about the property market and they talk about the property market going up by 2%, 3% as we are talking about 2024, 5%. We're looking at mostly a Dublin market that's settled, uh, prices not moving on there very, very greatly. And we're looking at a catch up for regional areas and that catch-up, I think, is going to what's going to drive the property market up this year. Uh, certainly, there are many, many areas out of the city of Dublin and between sort of Dublin and Galway, between Dublin and Limerick, between Cork and Limerick, that uh, prices haven't caught up to where they probably should have had. Uh, many people are still in negative equity, even presently as we're speaking, from the 2006 fallout. And those prices are going to move up and they're going to bring up the property market. But the Dublin market, I would say, is not going. It's, it's, it's settled where it is. It seems to be, uh, it, it, it does seem, doesn't seem to want to move on any further than where it is right now. And what are you finding among first-time buyers? How difficult and how challenging is it for them to get on the ladder? Well, if you're talking about first-time buyers buying new homes regionally, like first of all, you have to see where there's stock, where there actually is new homes being built. And in many of those towns, like we say, Athlone, probably Roscommon, Mullingar, Navan, that, 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 those type of towns, there isn't that many uh, new homes being built. But wherever there are, when you go out of those sort of towns where there's 25 or 30,000 population, if you go down to a town maybe with 2,000, 3,000 people, you will find that there's very, very little new houses being built, if any. 
And the reason being, as we all know, because the, uh, an average wage isn't able to buy you a property from 300, maybe to 350,000, what you're looking at the price of a new three bedroom semi. So it's not possible for those people to buy prop, to buy a new house. And for a first time buyer, it's even worse probably because, uh, first of all, they don't have a property to sell, so they're starting out and they have to get the money for it. They're depending on the first time buyer's grant or some of them are depending on the first loan, home loan. And, to get into that situation where you're able to borrow enough money, even if you're earning sort of the average wage of 50 or 60,000 euros, it's just not possible. So the amount of money that they can borrow isn't available to them. And uh, the funds that they have, even it can prove that they are renting properties and spending a lot more on the rent than the property mortgage is going to cost them. They still can't borrow the money to buy that property. And even if they could, the properties aren't available because builders won't build them because obviously they're not sure that people can afford to buy them. Pat, thank you very much for your time this morning. That's Pat David, CEO of the Institute of Professional Auctioneers and Valuers. And Pat is quoted in a piece in the Sunday Independent written by Wayne O'Connor this morning that has a geographical breakdown of house prices. And it does it by two bedroom apartment, three bed semi and four bed semi. Some of the prices are fairly eye-watering, particularly when you get into the Dublin area. And some of the increases are fairly eye-watering. It looks at the last 12 months and the increase in house prices, 11.4% in uh, Longford, 8.7% in Clare, 7% in Louth, 10% in Mayo, 10% in Leitrim, which are fairly significant. When you're, I mean, if you take the Leitrim cost, that's adding another €25,000 to a four-bed semi in, in one year alone. Gavin, you were saying you've been looking at the figures and, and something jumped out at you. Yeah, sort of from a, from a macroeconomic demographic point of view, uh, what, what I'm seeing here is it's page 12, uh, in your Sunday Independent, and it's really worth a look because uh, this map is saying something about uh, uh, Ireland at this point in time as regards work Ireland. And what, what it's saying is that hybrid working is here to stay. Now, tomorrow and throughout this week and every other week for the last number of months, there's debates going on uh, in in every boss's office about how do we get the gang the gang back into the office, uh, etc. So look at Dublin's situation there as regards, forget about affordability for a second, but see the percentage uh, increases, right? We're talking about fractions of 1%. Uh, so, 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 you this know. This is in the so, Dublin area. In, in the, so, so, so Dublin has flattened, right? Now that's, that's as much to do with affordability as anything else. And then you've mentioned them, Anton, Look at the western seaboard, always lagging behind in price increases, has, is suddenly top of the league. So you have 9.5% growth in the last 12 months in Donegal. Uh, you've Leitrim um, uh, popping up. Uh, yeah, 10.2%. Mayo, Mayo 10.7%. Uh, Claire, again, you mentioned, uh, and so on. So what that is confirming to me is that people are now voting with their feet as regards uh, their their work and their careers. And they're saying Dublin is just not affordable, quality of life, etc. And for those of us who over decades saw um, an over-dependence on the greater Dublin area and we were trying to decentralise the country, uh, the economic uh, situation, the crash of 2008, followed by this dr- dramatic uh, national disgrace of a housing shortage that's been allowed to continue and none of the political parties able to deal with it. 
But that map today and those figures requires study. And I'm saying that's what my figures head is seeing here that is saying something very significant. Yeah, particularly when you juxtapose the, the shifts that you're describing, the increases in, in the regions compared to the total costs in Dublin. I mean, uh, a four-bed semi in D4, 1.3 million. D6, a million even. Dublin 3, 820 grand. Uh, Dublin 18, 725. Dublin 14, 784. But, but prices are actually falling. I mean, if you look at Dublin 4, it's a decrease, predicted decrease of 0.2%. But look at the prices. 485,000. 967,000. 1.3 million for a four-bed semi. If you want to live in a three-bed semi-D, it's... You literally need a million euro but in Dublin other, 4. I mean, it's completely unaffordable for the vast majority of correct, people. Correct, but the other screamer of a fact that's coming out of this map, uh, and, and well done to Wayne O'Connor uh, on, on, on putting this together in, in the Sunday Independent, is that you, you have a situation where, uh, you know, why would you choose to live in Dublin, uh, even if your office is based in Dublin, when you could work uh, from home in Longford, we'll say, get much better value, much better quality of life. And uh, a few years ago, that would have meant 15 hours at, at least a week in your car. Now, now it You're doesn't. only saying this because you were an early adopter heading up to me though, no, those no, years no, ago. No, no, no. The point, no. The, the, what I want to say is that, that the back end of this is, is very significant. What do you do with all of those commercial properties in Dublin? And uh, are we going to have a second um, major financial fallout because of that? But they're not funded by the ordinary folk of Ireland. Uh, They they are... are, uh, Of course, uh, and when you talk to anybody in the commercial property argument, uh, market, they give you the argument that says, well, they still need it for the two or three days they come (laughs) in. Anyway, while we're on the topic of of property, uh, briefly this, I don't know, Larry or or Gabija, whichever of you might have a view on it, the news in respect of the children's hospital, Mm. we're getting the latest numbers and if you think four bed semis in Dublin 4 are expensive, we've crossed the two billion threshold. We're up at 2.2, yeah, is to it? 2.2. And I know obviously Cabinet signed off on an additional 500 million there in recent weeks. Um, so we've seen so many extra budgets added. And now finally we're seeing it on the horizon. It may be a mirage, but it might open early, maybe springtime next year. And it'll be completed later on this year. Just for context, that building is now one of the most expensive in the world. I mean, it costs more than the Burj Khalifa in Dubai and the Shard in London, which are of course, luxurious offices, Tower of Luxurious Offices in Sorry, London. Sorry, that, that's not a that's not a, an expression. That's literally, no, they literally are one more. of the most expensive buildings in the world. Well, if you compare it with the Burj Khalifa and the Shard, it is more expensive than both of those buildings. So if you think that the Burj Khalifa and the Shard are one of the most expensive buildings in the world, then our children's the hospital... The Burj Khalifa is the big giant hotel, the tallest in the world, isn't it? And in its Dubai offices or? as well. Uh, sorry, Burj Khalifa, yes. Um, and the Shard, of course, is off luxurious offices in, in, in London. Now, of course, uh, I made this argument during the weekend. The politicians said, me well it is a hospital there's so many facilities that it needs and it's going to be one of the top class hospitals so you can't really compare it with the Burj Khalifa or the Shard which of course is, is a fair argument as well but I'm just trying to give a little bit of context and of course it's mired in lawsuits as well there's still ongoing lawsuits isn't there between BAM the contractor and the um, purchasing yes, agency it's, it's, it's never ending I think the government wants to just breathe a sigh of relief and put it behind it now and just have the minister there for the day and say look it's been a hard row but finally we're opening it but Maeve Sheen reporting in the Sunday Independent one health official warning that quote it's certainly um, you know no indication that the costs will rest at that 2.24 billion and she's warning of future challenges and there's a myriad of those as well so the new hospital is going to merge three children's hospitals um, Our Ladies in Crumlin Tala and Temple Street and of course their, their rivalries will, will, will merge and there will be some for example you know 
issues that may be hard to reconcile as a result of that. The Irish Nurses and Midwives Organization saying that, you know, you, of course you're opening the new hospital, you're going to have to need staff that work there. Um, where are they going to live? That's always an issue for them as well. Um, the Mail on Sunday also reporting of a detailed audit uh, by the Comptroller and Auditor General, um, which will confirm that the HSC is running over budget. And of course, the HSC has its own swathe of problems as well. 2.24, but that's what, that's 2,240 million in all money. Can I just say that today is a cynic's paradise between (laughs) RTE mismanagement, uh, house prices skyrocket, and this damn hospital that's going to cost billions. It's extraordinary. Uh, Just on the housing thing, to come back to it in a minute, uh, it's it's nothing short uh, of a tragedy because... Uh, For so many young people, uh, and I ask my students, so many of them don't see a future uh, in this country. And that's not because they can't get jobs. It's not because they're not well-educated. It's because they cannot buy a home. And and it's easy for politicians to kick the crap out of RTE all day long. It's a lot harder uh, to solve the housing crisis. That's echoed by exactly the reaction that we are getting. I have a three-bedroom house for sale in an established area of Galway. My niece and her family would like to buy it but it won't qualify for any grants. They're forced to buy a brand new house for over €70,000 more. They can't afford this. There's a problem. They remain in a rental considering emigrating. Extend grants to second-hand homes. Another, I'm 36, engaged to be married and stuck living with my mom. I come home from work with my body aching from the physical aspect of it. I'm on €17.20 an hour and I have no hope of buying or even renting. It is depressing and demoralising. Now, Larry, can I start with you on um, matters to do with the US? We see today Joe Biden being critical of Congress because he says that it is their fault that Ukraine is is beginning to lose territory to Russia because of um, stymieing funding going to Ukraine. We also see Donald Trump in the extraordinary position of now being found to have defrauded banks in the US. He is banned for two years from functioning as a senior officer in a company, and he owes a total of nearly half a billion dollars. And you tweeted when this news came out, the political consequence of this will be nothing. Yeah, what a weird, weird world we live in uh, when somebody can be down half a billion dollars and it doesn't really make uh, much much of a difference. But uh, my tweets stem from, you know, the, the conclusion of looking at all of this for many, many months and even years now, Uh, Nothing sticks to Donald Trump. Uh, And his greatest gift as a politician is that he plays the game by different rules to everybody else. Mm -hmm. For anybody else, this would be devastating. For Trump, it doesn't mean a thing. Uh, And he enjoys a loyalty uh, among his base, and I think even further than his base, uh, that most politicians would kill for. Uh, We're looking into an extraordinary election where we have two candidates neither of whom the vast majority of the American people want uh, to be Republican or Democratic nominees, uh, yet here we still are. Uh, And this is going to be, uh, if it does wind up to be Trump and Biden, which it looks like it will, uh, this is going to be an unedifying, ugly, grotesque spectacle uh, of an election. What about the other cases that are pending against him? Because there is some speculation that says these were civil cases and therefore, for some reason, it seems possible that the public mind can dismiss them more easily, whereas if there are findings in terms of criminal intervention in election fraud and so forth, that that might be damaging to him. That that seems to be the case. Yeah, I think there is a, a big difference that people draw, even Trump people uh, draw between civil findings versus criminal findings. Uh, indeed, we've seen 
Uh, something like three out of 10 Republican voters, and at least according to the polling, uh, say that they, if Trump is convicted before the election, uh, that they will not vote for him in that case. Uh, the first case is coming up in New York. Uh, it's scheduled to start the 25th of March. Uh, to be honest, I think it's a weak case, but it is in the state of New York. Donald Trump doesn't have an awful lot of friends uh, in New York, so he could well uh, be convicted in that case. Uh, if he is, let's see if the d- dynamic changes, but uh, I'm still not so sure. He's still going to be the Republican nominee, uh, but certainly a conviction there would be a big gift uh, to the Biden campaign. And let's face it, look at the polling, uh, look at everything we're seeing on a daily basis. Joe Biden needs a gift. Did you ever think, I mean, you've been following politics for a long time, did you ever think you'd see a situation in America where the front runner for the Republican uh, candidacy, almost guaranteed to get the Republican uh, nomination, and the man who the polls has 50-50 or maybe better, has been found by a jury of his peers or by at least a court in his jurisdiction to have sexually assaulted somebody, to have defamed them and to have committed fraud. Yeah, uh, it, as you were reading it out there, it just it's, it's, it's a surreal uh, a situation that uh, we find ourselves in. And, uh, you know, I, I hear what Larry is saying about uh, Trump's... Um, unusual appeal that just doesn't seem to make sense to the rest of the world that uh, there are a certain type of Americans who, you know, feel there's a whole conspiracy against uh, their beloved Donald and uh, regardless, uh, they're going to support him. Uh, what, what I want to just clarify with Larry is, but like if you're in jail, you're not going to succeed as uh, in your bid for the presidency. Well, politically... So, I can't believe that that's actually where we've got <laughs> yeah, but, but, I mean, That was a serious pol- question. Pol- pol- politically, politically speaking, I, I would agree that it's highly unlikely that somebody uh, could serve as president from jail. The law Le- lecture is le- saying highly but, unlikely. But, that's but, as far but, as he's but, committing. But, but, but legally speaking, there is no impediment whatsoever to Donald Trump being in prison and being elected president and serving as president. There is no legal impediment to his doing so. Can you, exp- can you explain a thing to me, though, Larry, that I'm, I'm struggling to get my head around? Classical sort of Republican dogma, particularly MAGA Republican dogma, because Make America Great Again was Reagan's phrase, not Trump's. If we go back to the Reagan movement and the Reagan era, the fundamental opposition to the then USSR, now Russia, to communism, to all that that was, that was in the absolute DNA of that sort of Reagan Republicanism. How do we now find a situation where that has reversed to the point that Putin, who is willfully killing people, is now popular in the US and a figure to be admired. Because the conservative movement and the nature of American conservatism has changed dramatically. uh, And it's as a result of, in my view, uh, the twin forces of globalization and technology, which have uh, changed society in all sorts of very far reaching ways, uh, such that uh, an awful lot of Americans, they're not ideologically pure conservatives. A lot of the Trump people, they are turn back the clock conservatives. They want life to be like it was in the 1950s, before things got uh, extremely complicated, before an awful lot of them lost their livelihoods uh, as a result, again, because of globalization uh, and technology. So it's fundamentally different. As for Putin and the sneaking regard that a lot of them have for Putin, uh, some of that boils down to 
his social conservatism. Uh, the reality is that Putin is a very strong social conservative. We've heard a lot of the homophobic, for instance, statements he makes. Uh, a lot of people say that Putin stands up. Putin sounds like a, a decent guy. Uh, and I, I'm afraid that's where uh, a lot of Americans are. Donald Trump recognized this. He recognized that what John McCain was saying, what Mitt Romney was saying, was totally at odds with what ordinary conservatives think. And he was on message. And of course, that creates a huge problem when it then comes to holding Putin to account, because mm-hmm. ultimately the only entity large enough and powerful enough to so do is the USA. And if there isn't the popular support for doing it, he gets to continue to act with impunity. Yeah, I was very troubled by the comments that Donald Trump made about NATO um, in recent days and, and you know, sort of saying, well, look, if the countries that don't contribute as much to NATO as some of the others do, sure, why should we back them at all? And there was a piece that I read in the New York Times. Well, sorry, let's let's finish the quote yes. because not just yeah. we won't back them, yes. I would encourage Russia to yes. invade them. Um, so, so a piece that I read in the New York Times, which I found extremely troubling, uh, was when <laughs> Donald Trump took power for the first time and some of his officials and advisors were explaining to him how NATO works, basically. And he was saying, so if Russia attack Lithuania, we go and we fight, get into a war with Russia. He just didn't understand how any of it worked at all. Uh, for you listeners, I am Lithuanian. That's where I'm born. My parents are Lithuanian. I have a Lithuanian passport. And the invasion in Ukraine um, sent absolute shockwaves throughout the Eastern Bloc because the first thing that came into everybody's minds was, oh my God, we are going to be next. He's going to plough through Ukraine and then he's going to go straight for Lithuania and, and perhaps even Latvia. Lithuania has become extremely anti-Russian in recent years. Um, it's now the home to actually, um, you know, Alexei Navalny's HQ. Um, you know, they operate from Vilnius, uh, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, who is the, I suppose, opposition leader of sorts in Belarus. You know, she operates as well from Vilnius. Vilnius has very much taken a very strong anti-Russia uh, stance in recent years. So if we lose that key ally, which America is, um, and if we suddenly have Donald Trump talking about those little countries that nobody cares about in, in Eastern Europe, I mean, it certainly is going to be in trouble for, for the EU. And there is palpable fear of that at home? Absolutely. I mean, of, of, of course there is. Uh, we have this massive giant who has kept us under its thumb for so many years. And NATO, uh, whether you like it or not, and all the criticisms you may have of NATO, rightfully so, has been its lifeline. I mean, if we don't have NATO, we have, you know, Lithuania has this intelligence that it shares between NATO. It has the security, it has these strong allies of the US um, with all of its all of its power in case anything goes wrong. It knows that it has that support across the Atlantic. So NATO has been its lifeline. And that's what keeps it, um, gives it that feeling of safety and security. And yeah. I assume, sorry, Gavin, go ahead. Yeah, the, the, who we are again, though, uh, the phenomenon of, of, of Trump, uh, he just constantly gets our attention um, because he's, he's a very good media operator. Uh, whereas the question has to be asked, and it's not been asked enough, what, is, what are the Democrats doing running Joe Biden again? Uh, I, and by the way, I was his biggest fan. Um, I'm delighted he got a term uh, in the Oval Office. I would have liked him to do more uh, with it than, that, than he did. But, but they will him, say, or Biden will say, said I'd beat him, beat him. Only person to have beaten him in popular vote in Electoral College. Delivered on what I said I'd deliver on the economy. And once we start fighting Roe versus Wade, things will change. Yeah, but 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 you know he he does not have the appeal unless there's some like uh, there's no evidence that Biden is going no. to uh, put up uh, a strong campaign. 
No, I, I think Joe Biden is in big trouble. And to Gabby's point, uh, really well made uh, about NATO. And there's a lot of my lawyer friends are saying this is nonsense. Trump can't leave NATO and citing all these legal reasons. Uh, BS. Trump can effectively cripple NATO uh, by his own, by himself. Uh, so I think the, the concerns around Europe are well placed and Europe is going to have to take a look at its security policy in a big way. Big thank you to Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at the University of Galway, Gavin Duffy, businessman and broadcaster, and Gabija Gadavaskecha, who is political reporter with the Irish Independent. The Anton Savage Show. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday mornings from 10. On News Talk.